free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Who said those words? Yeah, Martin Luther King. So you don't have to say it out loud, but do you guys remember where he said those words? There's a little, yeah, Washington, D.C., exactly. Good job. That's impressive. All right. But specifically, I hadn't, I had kind of vaguely remembered this in class a long time ago, but I went to Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, and we uh, decided one night we're going to go visit the monuments. And so we were walking around, exploring a bunch of different places, and we were walking up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And I overheard somebody say this, isn't it amazing that this step, this step right here, is where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And it clicked for me for the first time. I'm about halfway through a Lincoln biography, a long Lincoln biography right now, and I'm just at the point where he's on the verge of signing the Emancipation Proclamation. And he signed it in 1863. And that was to set all of the African-American slaves free, to proclaim freedom for them. And then a hundred years later, in 1963, Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and gave his I Have a Dream speech. And the opening argument of his speech was brilliant. What he said was this, that a hundred years ago, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And before that, the Declaration of Independence was signed. And those were like a check, a check that guaranteed the freedom of the African slaves. But he's like, but this past hundred years, we haven't been able to get that full freedom. We've experienced injustice and oppression. And what is I Have a Dream speech was casting a vision of what it would look like for them to be truly emancipated, for the American people to make good on that promise of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was a powerful argument and one commentator put it this way, proclaiming emancipation, what happened in 1863, and possessing freedom are two very different things. Freedom is not easily gained, and once gained, it is easily lost. In the same way that African Americans were granted physical freedom at the Emancipation Proclamation, but then that freedom was hindered and oppressed and restricted, in the same way, Jesus' death on the cross proclaims spiritual freedom for all of those in Christ. But just because we've been granted that freedom doesn't mean that we're always living in that freedom to its fullness. And it doesn't always mean that there aren't going to be threats to that freedom throughout our lives, threats, threats to the very gospel itself. In our passage today, in Galatians 2, we see twice, we see twice in a few passages, 14 verses, the gospel itself is threatened. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Galatians 2, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to try to find my uh, Galatians 2 here as well. All right, it is on page 972 in the Pew Bible. So, Paul dealt with these threats to the gospel freedom. In the same way, whether you realize it or not, 
our gospel freedom is constantly being threatened. Whether it be through theology, through certain beliefs that people try to insert into the gospel, or whether it be socially, some ways that people will try to withhold the gospel from certain people. And so what do we do when the gospel is threatened? And we'll look at Paul's response in Galatians and the same response we're called to. The first is this. We must know our right to rest in gospel freedom. Second, we must defend our right to rest in gospel freedom. And thirdly, we must share our right to rest in gospel freedom. So those three things we're going to be looking at. To know, to defend, and to share our right to rest in gospel freedom. So first we're going to look at to know our right to, to rest in gospel freedom. The reality is it's very difficult to defend something you don't really know. Um, so would you say that you know the gospel so well that you could say it right now? Like if I were to get a microphone, which I'm not going to do, and go around and say, okay, tell us what the gospel is, would you be confident that you could share that, that you could articulate it? Because we have to know something in our head before we can defend it. So I'm going to give you it in a nutshell. The word gospel means good news. And it's good news that Jesus died and rose again to forgive us of our sins and to make us in a right relationship with God. And we receive this through faith. It's by trusting that Jesus did it and he did it alone, and that his work is finished, that we don't bring anything to the table. He brought everything to the table through his death and resurrection. And it's by grace alone, which means that it's a free gift. So all we have to do is receive it, and we can't add anything to it. Now, here's the th deal, though. Oftentimes, people try to add something to it. It's, if somebody tries to add anything to it, whether it be a work that we must do or a trait that we must have, then it's not the gospel. One commentator put it this way. For the gospel to be the gospel, it must stand alone. That it's Jesus and what he's done. Him alone. So we must know the gospel in order to defend it. But it's not enough just to know in our head, just to be able to wrote it out. We also must know it experientially. And that's why I'm using the word resting in the gospel freedom. And there's a difference between kind of knowing something or being familiar with something and then knowing it. And I saw this played out in uh, my two-year-old niece. Uh, her name is Nora. She's got a big red head. You'll probably see her around sometimes. Beautiful little girl. And her favorite stuffed animal is corduroy. You guys remember corduroy? Um, little corduroy teddy bear. And she loves that bear. She sleeps with it. She'll rock it. She'll even like put it down in the bed and put a blanket over. It's really sweet. She's grown up with this little bear. And our son, Cohen, also has a corduroy. And he's like, yeah, it's not, it's not his favorite. It's like just another toy in the toy bin. Um, but he likes it okay. And so one day, Nora was over, and we, uh, and she saw Cohen's corduroy bear, and she was playing with it and, you know, rocking it and things like that. And then her dad sneaky dog, um, got her corduroy and brought it out and held it up. And she was like, what? What? Like, there's two, two corduroys? <laughs> um, and, and then she walked over to it and grabbed it 
and held both of them in her hands and looked at them, held them close, smelled them. And then she threw away Cohen's corduroy and she pulled her corduroy in close and held it. But how did she know they were the exact same toy? But it's because she had grown up with this toy. She knew what it smelled like. She knew its little creases and its little tuffled hair. It was a little smelly too, so she wouldn't know that. (laughs) But in the same way, in order for us to know the true gospel, the one and only gospel, we can't just know it up here. We also have to experience it, to rest in it. And that's what gospel freedom does. It allows us to rest. It gives us the right to rest from earning God's love or striving to be loved by him. It gives us the right to rest from the fear of death or God's judgment. This past week, we had three different church members pass away. But we don't have to fear. We can rest and grieve, but with hope because we know they're with the Lord. And we ourselves, if we're in Christ, we need not fear. We can rest in the gospel freedom that we have, even over death. It gives us the right to know that no matter what discrimination we face, no matter when people treat us unlovingly, that we know that God shows no partiality. He doesn't discriminate. He draws us near, all of God's children. It gives us the right to rest from having to justify our identity based on our achievements, whether it be academics or sports. Somebody sent me an article today, uh, a couple of days ago on Generation Z. That's the new generation. They're the teenagers now. They're going to be taking over the place in a few years. Um, But what the study showed was that Generation Z, for them, personal achievement, whether it be educational, professional, or hobbies, are the most central thing to their identity. And that's never happened before in the history of while they've been doing this test. The boomers and Generation X, the millennials, all of them, the most central thing to their identity has maybe been their religion or it's been their family or their friend group or a political cause. But for them, it's personal achievement. And the gospel, the freedom, gives us the right to rest in the freedom that we have in Christ. That our identity is not based on our achievements in school or sports or in our work. It's not dependent on how good of a mom we are or how good of a dad or how good of a spouse we are. It's solely in Christ alone and the work that he's done. It's his achievement, not ours. And so in the midst of our striving, we really can rest. And so we have to know the gospel, the freedom that gives us the right to rest in his finished work. But it's not just enough to know it. We see we also have to defend that right to rest in gospel freedom. And that's what Paul did in our passage. We see in Galatians 2, verse 1 through 3, he heads up to Jerusalem. And he's going up there because he wants to make sure his gospel is in line with the gospel in Jerusalem. So he goes to the influential guys, Peter, James, and John, or Cephas, Peter, same difference. Peter, James, and John goes up to them to share his gospels. And it says that he's afraid he's run in vain. And it would make you, if you were just looking at the words there, you would think, well, like, is he like insecure? Like, do I have the right gospel here? But clearly that's not the case. Paul knows the gospel. It was revealed to him by Jesus himself. What it means when he says that he was, that he was in fear that he was running 
running in vain was he was afraid that his gospel, which is the gospel is for all people, was different than the gospel being preached in Jerusalem, which they would say, well, the gospel, you have to become Jewish in order to receive Christ. And the reason why he was afraid that it would be in vain is because if that was the case and he had been planting churches and sharing the gospel with all these different Gentile nations and then people from the Jerusalem church came in and said, hey, no, actually uh, you have to get circumcised. You have to become Jewish in order to, to also be saved. Then all of his work would be in vain. His, his work would be threatened. His fruit would be cut at the very root. And so he goes up not because he's insecure about it, but he wants to make sure the church is united. The Gentile church and the Jewish church are hand in hand. But he doesn't just go up to proclaim the message. He goes up with somebody in the flesh, a guy named Titus. Titus was Greek and he was uncircumcised. So it was a perfect object lesson to say this is an uncircumcised Gentile who has been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. He has been freed and forgiven. And will they force him to be circumcised in order to be acceptable by God? And so they're talking with Peter, James, and John. And then it says in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. So he uses espionage language. But they're not just coming to spy out and then to go back and tell somebody. It actually says they've come to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So these are false brothers. These are people that are threatening the gospel from the outside. These are not Christians. This is a threat that's come in from the outside. And the slogan of these false brothers can be summarized in Acts 15 verse 1 where it says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were trying to add the necessity of the law to the gospel. And in short, to sum it up, their teaching stemmed from this all-important question. Do we need to add external behaviors to internal belief in order to be saved? They were trying to add something to the finished work of Jesus as if it needed to be refinished. And the reality is we as Christians are always tempted to do this, to add something to the finished work of Jesus in order to really deem somebody a true Christian, a real Christian. Yeah, sure, faith, that's your, yeah, that's, that's good. I'm glad you have faith. But we try to add something, and it's usually something good. And almost all of these at some point I've implicitly tried to tell people like, yeah, but in order to be a real Christian, you need to have some particular experience of the Holy Spirit. And then once you have that, then you're really in. You're really living it. Or maybe it'd be some special ministry. And it's always the ministry that I'm involved in. You know, it's like, hey, once, yeah, once you get involved in this ministry, then, you know, once you go on a mission trip, then you've really become a Christian. Then you really see. Or it's some style of worship, you know. It's like the Anglicans, don't tell anybody, but we worship the right way, you know. Or, you know, the, the order, I love the order, or, you know, the freedom to be able to lift our hands, whatever that is. Or it's a doctrine, a specific doctrine, whether it be the way, when you baptize someone, or predestination versus free will. Oftentimes, we try to hold these things up as equal with the finished work of Christ. 
And the reality, what they do is divide the church. And they make divisions where there need not be divisions. And they take the beautiful diversity of the gospel and try to pigeonhole it. But the reality is that there is only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And it's hinged on this, that Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is the gospel. And for the gospel to be the gospel, it must stand alone. And so what does Paul do? In verse 5, it says, To them he did not yield in submission even for a moment. So he jumps right in, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He jumps to the defense of the gospel. And notice what he says there. He says, so that it might be preserved for you. He says, I didn't want to just defend the gospel so I could be right. I wanted to do it so it would be preserved for you, Galatian church. And so it would be preserved for you, Grace Anglican Church. So we don't just defend the gospel for ourselves. We do it for the next generation. And there's some of you guys in here that paid quite a price for the one true gospel. And you left a church building that you loved. You moved into a cafetorium and set up and broke down for a couple years. And then you dug into your wallets and paid for this building and this campus that we dwell on now. Why? Not to be right, but to preserve the gospel for the next generation. And a hundred years from now, nobody's going to really know the sacrifice that you did, but they'll know the gospel. That's what you did. You preserved it. And that's why we defend the gospel, the one true gospel. So Paul, the good news is he was approved by Peter, James, and John. They extended the right hand of fellowship. And then Peter, James, and John said, we're going to go to the Jews. Paul, you and Barnabas, you go to the Gentiles. And then they both pledged to remember the poor. They said, Jesus came to us in our poverty, and we too should care for the poor and give generously to the poor. The gospel freedom was threatened from the outside, and the gospel freedom was defended. That was a close one, wasn't it? And then, the very next verse, the gospel freedom is threatened again. But this time from inside the church. This time from one of the pillars of the church, Peter. It says this in verse 11. For when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So even Barnabas was led astray. And then it says, When I saw his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, and then he confronted them. Now imagine that. We're at a church potluck. Everybody's enjoying ourselves. We're having a good old time. And then Gus storms across the room and says, Dan, you're not preaching the gospel, man. You're leading people astray. Like awkward.com, right? (laughs) But that's what happened here. Paul, defending the gospel, is willing to confront Peter himself. So why is Peter drawing back from these Gentile believers? What's going on here? 
Well, it's not a theological thing. Peter knew the gospel. And a few verses earlier, he had just said, yes, your gospel, we approve it completely. It wasn't a theological thing. It was actually a social thing. That he, uh, at the time, eating with people was sharing fellowship with them, seeing them as your equals. And because the Gentiles were now equal in Christ, they were breaking bread together. And he had been doing this for some time now, Peter had. But then the folks from Jerusalem came, the circumcision party. Now, if you don't know what that means, it sounds really scary, like you would never want to go to one of those. Um, <laughs> but what that meant is that the people that were Jewish Christians had come down from Israel, and uh, Peter drew back when they came, and he, and he refused to eat with them, with the Gentiles. And it says for two reasons. First off, he was fearing them, which means that there was fear of man there, fear of their criticism, fear of the criticism of the traditionalists. And there was also some racial nationalistic pride as well. That the Jews, as from the time they were kids, they had been drilled into their head that the Jews were the inferior people and that Gentiles were unclean and inferior that they were first-class citizens, the Jews, and the Gentiles were kind of second-class world citizens. And those two things in our lives, social pressure, well, what are those people going to think about me? And then hidden pride, this insidious thing in us that rises up sometimes that says, you know what, I think I'm better than them. Those two things, social pressure and hidden pride, cause us to do a lot of things that compromise our call to extend the unconditional, free gospel love and message to other people, people that are different from us. And we see this in grade school. It starts in grade school. It gets pretty cruel in middle school. Middle schoolers in here press on. It does get a little better. Um, but you see it in the lunchroom. Social pressure. There's somebody who's, you know, not quite as cool and you realize when you hang out with them, you know, you're not quite as cool. And then you have that hidden pride, and you think, well, I am cooler than them, and so you distance yourself from them. But it doesn't stop in the lunchroom. It's in the boardroom. It's in our social circles. People we know who are in, people we know who are out, and we try to associate with the in crowd and, and not the out crowd. But it just doesn't happen in this micro ways. It also happens in some macro ways in our society. We have nationalism where we think as, as Americans, we are really the best. Or racism or sexism or classism. The rich thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to mess around uh, with the poor. These things that are at work in us, and oftentimes we don't realize that they're there until there's a little social pressure and then that hidden pride comes up in us. This idea that I'm going to distance myself from somebody who's dis different from me. So what does Paul do? How does he respond? He jumps right in, in front of everybody. Because it's a public sin of Peter's, he confronts him publicly and says, when I saw your conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, these attitudes, brothers and sisters, are not in step with the gospel. He says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul jumps in and defends the right to rest in the gospel freedom, that there are no second-class Christians, that we are all saved by faith because of what Jesus did. And so you see there's one gospel, and that one gospel is for all people. There's not many different gospels for all people, and there's also not one gospel for some people. There's one gospel for all people. And it has theological as well as social ramifications. That's what the gospel is meant to do and be. One commentator put it this way, there can be no discrimination in the church. We can't exclude people based on race, gender, class, age, nationality, or anything else. Sometimes it's relative righteousness where we think, well, some people, you know, I struggle with pride, but, you know, kind of everybody struggles with pride. That's no big deal. But if you struggle with things like depression or your marriage is really struggling or you're tempted by a sin that isn't acceptable, maybe it'd be sexual sin, or you're addicted, well, you better keep quiet. Don't bring that into the church. Don't share that with different people. Yet according to the gospel, we all, because of faith and faith alone, and Jesus and him alone, have equal standing before God. And therefore, we're called to have equal standing amongst one another. There's no second-class citizens. So the take-home for you, the application for you this week is this. Who in your life do you have a hard time loving or relating to? Who do you struggle to extend that love and freedom and grace to? And I want to encourage you to look for an opportunity this week. Search your heart. See who it might be. Look for an opportunity to bless that person. Look for an opportunity to share the love of Christ with that person. Because the reality is, a lot of the times that we don't believe that we're accepted and loved by God, it's because somebody at some point in our life hasn't loved and accepted us. And so we think, well, why would God love me? Why would he accept me? But if you ask people why did they accept the love of God, the majority of the time they'll tell you, well, there was a Christian that loved me unconditionally. And so I thought if they can love me unconditionally, then maybe God does too. So this week, I want to encourage you. Think about who that person might be. Seek to love them. God shows no partiality. Thank God for that. And so let's love others just like he loved us. So those three things. We need to know the right to rest in gospel freedom. Defend the right to rest in gospel freedom. And we need to share the right to rest in gospel freedom. And I want to finish with Martin Luther King's concluding words of I Have a Dream speech, which speak not only to racial equality, but also to gospel freedom that Christ offers to us by his work on the cross. He said this, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men, white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, 
free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you've given us, for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, help us know that freedom in our hearts. Lord, give us boldness to defend that freedom when we must. And Lord, I pray you would give us eyes to see and you would soften our hearts to share that freedom, even with those to whom uh, we are hard to love sometimes. Come Holy Spirit, only you can do this. Be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.